Cool. So just quick review because I don't want to forget what we've covered. We said there's three big ideas. So every time we're reading scripture, every time we come to the biblical narrative, there's three big ideas that we have to remember. Does anybody remember what those three things are? We've had them every single week. Context is king. Yep. Context is king. Which means that scripture has to be read in context of the day and culture and narrative place that it finds itself in. So we're going to move from Abraham to, um, hopefully, Abraham to um, the rest of Torah today. Um, and there's a lot of like narrative building in that moment. Abraham does not know that God's going to enter into a new covenant or an additional covenant with Israel um, 400 and so, 500 years later. And so you can't assume that he understands what comes that much later in the story. You have to treat him kind of like he is where he is in the story. He knows what he knows in the story. That's his culture. That's his day. And this is God speaking to him then, and it builds upon there. So, yeah, so context is king. The, the word is human and divine. Yes. So when we think about the word being human, we need to approach it with, I think, all of the resources that we have at our disposal to understand the human word. So like this Hebrew Bible, like the very first thing we have to understand is that the Bible was not written to you. It's not written in your language. It's not written into your culture. It wasn't written um, in 21st century modern American English. Uh, so that means that since it was written, it is a human word written to humans, we have to do some work to understand it and unpack it. And the more that we understand about history, the more that we understand about language, the more that we understand about the day, um, the better we will be at understanding the human word. And so it shouldn't freak us out when we learn new things or challenge about our opinion because it's a human word. But then there's also a divine word. And so in that human word is what God is saying, what is authoritative. And that's the voice that we're trying to listen to ultimately. There was one more thing. Does anyone remember it? The nerves are so high. No one knew they would be tested. There's no grade. It was... I'll just go there. The Bible is a unified story about God and his mission to bring his kingdom. Um, so this is just beginning to make sense now that we finish Genesis 1 through 11. Um, so we've looked at the problems of the world, and we've said that we've looked, and so we've seen from Genesis 1 through 11 that heaven and earth are divided, humans have rejected God in his ways, death is a reality now, so it must be destroyed, there's strife and striving of nations that must be resolved, and the suffering of the entire created order must be dealt with, of things that we've seen from Genesis 1 through 11. And so then we look at what's going to happen, how is God going to respond to that? And so then we get this, this idea that the Bible becomes a unified story about God and his mission to bring his kingdom, which is what will resolve these things. Um, and that, in truth, really begins as we come to Genesis chapter 12, um, starting in verse 1, which is where we're going to hit today, just real fast. Um, so right after Babel, so this is Genesis chapter 11, right after Babel, we've seen this like downward spiral of human sin. Um, people have moved away from God. And then we begin this little like sub-narrative, we could say, right here of Genesis 12. Verse 1 through 3, as God is going to enter in and respond to human sin. And this is what he says to Abram. He says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now if you're 
Paying attention, there are six. Sweet. Um, if you're paying attention, there's six promises that have huge implications. First, that God's going to give Abram a land. So he's like this nomadic people group at this time, and God's like, hey, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a great nation. Um, and I'm going to bless you, make your name great, bless those who bless you, and bless the whole world through you. Now, if you're paying attention, that's super fascinating because if we go back to Genesis 11, um, those are the things that the people of Babel are actually seeking to achieve. So if you're reading this in context just to Babel, God is going to achieve for the people of, he's going to achieve for Abram all the things that they had hoped to achieve for themselves. And he's going to do this through what we'll begin to call from here on out covenant. Um, and covenant language will be used all throughout scripture. It is, maybe you could say a mega theme that's going to drive the narrative home. And so you'll see covenant uh, with Noah, which we saw in Genesis chapter 6 a few weeks ago. You'll see it with David, which we'll see in a few weeks. You'll see it with um, the new covenant in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. You'll just see it kind of all over. We'll look at two different ones today. They push the narrative forward. And when we think about covenant, there's two types of covenant that we'll see throughout scripture. There's bilateral, which means that there's stipulations for both parties that are entering into this kind of like covenant contract. And you could think of a covenant as a really intense contract, like a marriage contract, um, something like that. But there's also unilateral, which means that one party carries all of the weight and responsibility for fulfilling the covenant. So when we looked at Genesis chapter 6, God enters into a covenant with Noah. And he's like, hey, Noah, um, you are a representative on behalf of all the people. I'm blessing you. I'm reaffirming that you're made in my image. I'm reaffirming that you have a job to do in this world, that you are here to multiply, fulfill, uh, or you're here to multiply, to fill the earth, to um, create and to cultivate. And I also promise that I will not, that I will, I will be committed to the earth's survival and its renewal. But it is a unilateral commitment. Noah doesn't actually bear any responsibility for that covenant. God promises to do it, and it's based fully on his own goodness and faithfulness, that I will do these things, and Noah, you're just the one receiving the covenant. And in this moment, it is exactly the same way. Abram is not being told, really, I mean, he's being told to leave his land, but there's not a moment of where it's like, if you fail, then I will not do these things. Or if you uh, drop the ball, then I will stop being faithful. It is still a unilateral covenant. Now, when we go to Israel, we'll actually see a bilateral covenant. So you see him happening. But this one, it is a unilateral covenant, includes a six promises and they speak directly to what we saw in Babel and they speak a lot about how God is going to rescue the world and he uses this term five different times throughout which is bless and in Hebrew just in case you're curious um, the phrase is Barack um, like our president Barack Obama um, blessed Obama um, which is actually what that would mean in Hebrew so Barack means to bless and if you're looking for like, okay, so what does bless mean? Because that's like a super generic kind of like religious term. Um, so what does it mean to bless? Well, you have to go to the context of scripture. Where have we seen bless before? What other places in the biblical narrative so far from Genesis 1 through 12 have we seen that word used? Well, the very first time that we see it used is in Genesis chapter 1. So God has created everything and then he begins to bless certain things. And he uses the phrase three times in Genesis 1. On day five, he blesses the birds and the fish. On day six, he blesses humans. And on both of those times, he follows the blessing with that mission to flourish, to cultivate, to create, to fill the world. 
And then on day seven, he blesses his own entrance into the world when he enters into relationship with his people and he moves into his house. So three different times, which are all about like the way things are supposed to be. Uh, then he uses it again in Genesis chapter nine, where the creator is launching his new world order. After the flood has happened, he blesses Noah, enters into covenant relationship with him. He uses the exact same language from Genesis 1, reaffirms that Noah is made in the image of God, tells him to flourish, and then blesses him. And then as we come to this moment, in Genesis chapter 12, those moments of blessing should be what shapes our thoughts or shapes our imagination. So what is God doing? What does it mean to bless? And we've seen all of these moments have been linked to what? A restoration of the created order, the flourishing of the people, um, the renewal of God's presence, or the uniting of God's presence, it's all been linked to fixing the problem <clears throat> that was Genesis chapter 3 and going back to, or, or creating something like Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So when you say, I'm going to bless you, it's like, oh, I'm going to restore. I'm going to renew. I'm going to fix things. Um, and he says it five different times. And so there's, there's three... I guess implications to that that you'll see in the life of Abram and you'll see as that story kind of like flushes itself out. There is um, a vertical dimension to that. It means that God's relationship with his people will be restored and renewed. So that's part of the blessing because we've seen that in Genesis chapter 1 that what is blessed is, oh, it's me entering into relationship with my people. So there's a vertical restoration of relationship. There is a horizontal restoration of people in the world. because we've seen in Genesis 3 that, that was cursed, that was separated, that where once flowers came up, now thistles come up from the work of hands. Uh, and then it's also missional, and that it is a blessing for the peoples of the world, that Abram is called to be a blessing to all the world around him. This will be substantial when we get into Israel, because all of a sudden their whole national identity will be rooted in this moment, uh, and, and a build-off of this moment of what are they here for, why do they exist, what does their relationship with God look like, what are they supposed to interact with the world like, and it's going to be like, oh, we exist because our relationship with our God has been restored, our relationship with our world is being restored, and we are here to be missional in that we help others have a restored relationship or, or experience blessing. And not only is it huge for understanding Israel, it's huge for understanding Jesus, Because Paul will later call this moment the gospel in advance. He'll say in Galatians that that God is actually preaching the gospel early on in the life of Abraham. And then he'll say, how? Oh, he'll say that this promise is actually about Jesus. So if you trace it, like if we could look at like a, here's the the one narrative that we're going to look at. And then underneath that is like another narrative that runs straight to the cross. And that this moment is all about that in the long run. This moment of blessing and restoration links to Jesus, because who else gets to do that? Who else gets to restore our vertical relationship with God? Oh, Jesus. Who else gets to, um, who else is he's going to reconcile all things into himself, including the created order? Oh, Jesus says those things. And who else is here for the world? Oh, Jesus says. So this actually points towards Jesus. The other thing that's dope uh, about this moment is that the phrase blessing is used five times, right? And if, you've been, if we were paying attention in Genesis 1 through 11, the phrase curses was used five times. And so the writer of the book that you guys got, he'll make this point. He'll say, oh, sorry, I should have shown you that. He'll say this, that the fivefold repetition of the word bless is deliberately set into opposition to the fivefold occurrence of the word curse in Genesis 1 through 11. The curse on humankind has meant their loss of freedom, their alienation from the soil, their estrangement from one another, and their moral and spiritual de- or spi- their moral and spiral degradation. The repetition of bless in Genesis 12, 
1 through 3 declares that through Abraham, God is at work to reverse the effect of judgment on his creation. And as you follow the narrative, all of a sudden that makes a lot of sense as to how he's going to do that. Um, now, we're not going to spend much time in the patriarchs because they're boring. I'm just joking. Um, but as you, as you just kind of follow their journey, the story all of a sudden, which we've looked at, has been all national. It's all been like all the nations. And then we zoom into the life of Abraham. And as we just follow his story for a while, you get the other patriarchs. So Abram has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has a lot of sons, one of those being Joseph. Um, through Joseph, the patriarchs find themselves in the land of Egypt. And that's a cool moment for them until what we think historically happens is that there's some kind of dynasty change in the ranks of Egypt and where pharaohs had once been really favorable to the people of Israel, they now get super hostile because you've seen a people multiplying um, and growing and now you're like, why are there so many people in my land that aren't my people? That seems really threatening. And so there's a dynasty change, and the people of Israel become slaves or servants, which is the story that we know really, really well. And they're there a long time in slavery, which I think begs a really important question. Um, why? Why are they there so long? Like, So God knows. Like, I, He's like, I've just entered into a covenant relationship with you. Through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. Now, I guess you could make an argument that um, Israel is blessing someone by being the slaves to Egypt, but I don't think that's exactly what God intended. Um, yeah, maybe. Um, why enter into a covenant relationship with them, let them go to uh, Egypt, which, which Joseph will say at the end of um, Genesis is God using evil for good because his brothers tried to kill him, and now they're being saved in Egypt through drought. So, so this is like a good thing. But why let them stay there? Why not bring them out after the drought's over? Like, you've been there for 400-some years. Why not rescue them? Anybody have an idea? Why let the people stay there for so long in slavery? I do love writing on the board. I do. Oh, that's a good thought. I never even thought of it like that. Just It's like a, a fertile ground for people growth. <laughs> seems pretty legit. <laughs> no, it seems totally legit. I don't know if there is a wrong answer in some senses. I mean, I have one that I'm going to use, but I think that that's... Like, at some level, like, God, the Scripture doesn't answer all the questions that we always want it to. And so there's totally truth that, like, like it gives us one answer, and yet God can be thinking about lots of things at the same time. Like, this is a better environment because they're not going to be, like, struggling and striving in other places for survival. They say, like, that they at least have food to eat. So, like... Mm-hmm. They were fed way hard. Like, by being in slavery, they were, like, kind of in a controlled environment in which they were kind of kept safe to be able to multiply. But then it also kind of allowed them to multiply as a distinct people group. Oh, interesting. Although they were in Egypt, they obviously weren't on the same level as Egypt. So it's not like they were influenced probably maybe as much as they could have been by yeah. other pagan cultures around that time. That makes sense. That seems legit, too. God is all, often moving in ways in Israel's life to make them distinct. Still not your answer, though. <laughs> no, no, so I'll, get, I'll, I'll go to my answer. Um, uh, I think that's great, though. I think those are all really solid answers. Um, so, as an answer to the question, though, that Scripture gives, in, if we go back, all the way back to Genesis, God actually comes to Abram and says... 
this unfortunate piece of information. He says, then, this is Genesis 15, verse 13 through 16. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So, super fascinating. God tells, oh no, don't look at that. Um, or that. It's fine. Um, God tells Abram, way before they're going to be in the land of Egypt, before they're going to experience suffering or slavery, that his people will suffer because the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. Well, what in the world does that mean? And here's what I would suggest, is that God is giving the people of the Amorites, which is the people that live in Canaan, time. Time to repent, time to change their ways, time to trust, time to move away from the practices of their culture um, towards the things of God before he intervenes in their life. Um, and as we study what is happening in Canaan during this time, I mean, it looks a lot like the cultures around it, but it's, it's intense, it's brutal. And so to me, it looks like what's going on is that God gives them time. Um, because God, we see this all throughout scripture. It's a, kind of like a part of his character and nature is that God is way more patient than we ever expect him to be. He's patient with the people of Israel. He's patient with the nations that God hate or that Israel is like, please destroy them. And God's like, well, hold up, homes. Like, I care about them too. He is way more patient than we ever expect. And I think what's happening here is that God is being patient. And then also what we see being part of this is that as part of being the people of God, that actually includes suffering. Like, that's what Jesus would say when we come to the New Testament. Like, if you want to follow me, you have to pick up your cross. And I don't think that there's really anything different necessarily for the people of Israel, like if you want to be God's people, if you want to receive the blessings that come with the covenant of Abraham, it also means that you're, you're on a mission for other people, which means that you will suffer. Yeah, for sure. And that's like kind of what drove a lot of their history throughout the Old Testament and also like in their expectation of waiting for a Messiah to come. Mm-hmm. It's so central that they would be brought back into the promised land and stuff. Totally. And that's a great point. If you, as we read on in Scripture, Exodus language, that, this, that, that becomes a picture of biblical redemption, what happens in the Exodus story. And the prophets will go back to it all the time. Um, other biblical writers, the kings, always reference it as like, this is how God works, this is how he changes things, this is how he transforms things. It becomes like the moment, it's like, it, like for Christians, like the cross. So we always point to that as being the image of like, this is what redemption looks like. And for Israel, it's always the exodus. So it becomes, not only is it necessary for them to be rescued, but it's also symbols and signs for how they're going to think about the world, how they're going to think about their own identity, which is um, a great segue into... The Exodus. Um, it's like how much faster we're moving than before. We've covered already all of Genesis. Um, <laughs> so 12 seconds, and we did more than we did in three weeks. Um, so the people are there. God's giving them time. But eventually he hears the cries. This is what it says in Exodus 1. And he hears the cries of his people as they're suffering, they're crying out. 
And he calls Moses to himself, who's this um, Israelite who's been educated in Egyptian palaces. We've all seen the Prince of Egypt, so we know what's going on. Um, And he decides to rescue his people. And then we get this super famous moment of the ten plagues and this huge kind of like theatrical performance. And again, we have to ask the question, why? Why not just change the heart of Pharaoh? Why not just stop them from intervening? Why not just do something different to call the people of Israel out of the um, land of Egypt and out of slavery and into the promised land? Why do we have to do such big gestures? And I think Ian was actually hitting on it. Um, It is for the message that's going to be communicated. So God will actually tell uh, Egypt this in Exodus 9, verse 16. He'll say, But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. And he said it previously in Exodus 7, 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out my people of Israel from among them. Um, And so we've talked about this before, but the narrative is in conversation with the cultures of the day. Not our culture, but the cultures of the day. And Israel has been living in Egypt which has a very developed mythology. Um, They have a pantheon of gods. Pharaoh believes he in himself is a god. Um, And so they have been slaves and servants to gods. And their whole, like, they may be trying to hold on to the promise of Abraham, but you've been here for a long time. You probably actually don't have any written literature at this point yet. And so you're just, like, telling stories, hoping that that, that, like, keeps your mind clear more than the stories of Egypt and the subjugation that you're experiencing. So you're going to be just like in this identity crisis all the time. You're like, I know what our fathers have told us about this promise, but Pharaoh, he keeps hitting me. And he says that he's a god. And I feel way more controlled by him. And then they're going to leave, right? So say they leave, they're going to go into Canaan, and, and they're going to be surrounded by Babylonian mythology. They're going to be surrounded by Canaanite mythology. They're going to be surrounded by Amorite mythology. And we've looked and seen that in Genesis 1, they have an alternative, alternative story that's not as good. They have an alternative story about who humans are, which is that they're slaves built by the product of violence. Uh, they're going to have different ideas about what your purpose is, different ideas about how you interact with the gods. And so God is making a statement about who he is in contrast with the narratives of Egypt, Babylon, Canaan, and other cultures in the day. And he is doing it so that one, the Israelites will have a new identity as the people of God, um, but also because the people of Israel are supposed to be a blessing. And so as the Israelites are leaving Egypt, Egyptians come with them, and they're invited to come with them. So God has made this statement known to the Egyptians so that they will know who is that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand, so that they can actually become a part of whatever it is that God is doing through the Israelites. And then they're going to lead them into the Canaan, and it'll be for the rest of the world to know who is God. So that's why he does it. And then the way that he does it is super fascinating. We won't look at it too long. But every one of the plagues corresponds directly to one of the Egyptian gods. And so in each of those moments, God is not just like willy-nilly like, this is fun, frogs are cool. Um, Or like, I think that blood of the Nile would be a great joke. Um, No, no. Egypt has a god of the Nile. And so when, when God usurps the Nile, he has directly attacked an Egyptian god. And so the question is, is like, they will know who, that, that I, they will know that I am the Lord, that I am the creator of the universe. And so he's going to directly attack different Egyptian gods systematically and say, I've won there, and I've won there, 
I've blotted out the sun, and who gets the sun? Oh, Osiris is the sun. Well, I've won there. Or Pharaoh is a god? Well, I've taken his son, who is also supposed to be a god. So who's the real Lord? Who's the real creator of the universe? Who really wields power in this place? Um, You have systematically ended someone's mythology about the universe and declared yourself to be God, Um, which is dope. Um, Yeah, and then after that, the the Egyptians are invited to be followers and then um god does this thing that's really cool and i think if i think it's totally like a cool narrative moment there's let's draw some fire because fire is sweet so this is uh, exodus um and then god leads the people into what he rescues them wilderness. the wilderness and again i think if we're paying attention to the story god likes to do things in wildernesses and we saw it in Genesis chapter 1, we saw it in Genesis chapter 9, we saw it um, now that, that God has this tendency to, to make beautiful things out of wild spaces. Uh, and I think that that's exactly what is intended to be communicated as God leads the people into the wilderness, that you've been rescued by these huge acts of power and majesty, you've been saved, and now we're going we're gonna to craft you into a people of God with a new identity, a new understanding of the universe, a new value, because you've always thought you were slaves, and so now we're going to have to rework through that with you in the wilderness, where I have a tendency to bring really cool things into life. Um, which, that's cool, too. And then in the wilderness... Look how fast we're moving. We're already at Exodus 19. In the wilderness, uh, after three months of being there, the people come to Mount Sinai, which is very substantial. And at Mount Sinai, God, through Moses, says this, which will forever form the people of Israel. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession amongst all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words that you, Moses, shall speak to the people of Israel. So, been rescued. They've come to Mount Sinai. God comes onto the mountain. It's like a really terrifying scene. The people of Israel are like super freaked out. This is lightning. Snow. I don't know if there's actually any snow at the top of Mount Sinai, but mountain should be dry with snow. Uh, he comes to them. This is Exodus 19. If you're trying to remember certain passages of Scripture, these are great ones to remember. Genesis chapter 12, Exodus 19. He comes to them and says, Okay, I'm building on the promise that I gave to Abram, the covenant that was there. How are you going to be a blessing to the world around you? How are you going to change the world around you? How am I going to restore my relationship? And he says, Exodus chapter 19. And you will be to me a people of priests. So that's a weird set of language. What do priests do? Well, in ancient cultures... Um, you would have like the gods here priests here and then the people of the nation normally here so if you if these people wanted to interact with these figures they had to go through priests these were the mediators of the gods they were the the go-betweens the in-betweens of the gods for the people so what is God telling the people of Israel Here's going to be Yahweh, the distinctive God of Israel. Who's here? Oh, whoa, Israel. And then who's here? Whoa, the world, yeah. 
So what does it look like? How is the people of Israel going to be a blessing? How are they going to live out the Abrahamic covenant? How are they going to change the world? Oh, they're going to be a people of priests who live in unique proximity to the creator of the universe, who have a unique relationship to the creator of the universe. And through that relationship, mediate blessing to all the world. So teach the world. They'll um, experience blessing and the world will see experience blessing. They'll live distinctively and the world will see the distinctiveness of the people of Israel and know who Yahweh, the creator God, the God of Israel, truly is. Now to do that, he gives them, throughout Exodus and beyond, three um, large things. Uh, one of them we've already seen, which is the land. So they're going to get a promised land. And the land will exist, really, of the known world of the day in as much the middle of the known world as possible. So you have Babylon on one side, you have Egypt on the other side, you have the Philistines on this side. You have all these cultures that are around it. And if you wanted to be seen, this is where you would live. Um, so they have a land... What else do they have that will help them be known? Any ideas? The time of the evil. <laughs> yeah, that's, I'm going to put that right here. Yeah, you're right. Because they're, they're going to multiply. See, there's like physical people, yeah. They'll have Torah, which is God's... Um, we always translate it law, but I think it's actually better translated teachings. And they will have fancy tent called the tabernacle <laughs> it's a pretty fancy tent um, so God gives them at least you could say and there's other things that we can talk about too but there's, God gives them these three things and through these three things they will live in unique relationship with God they'll live distinctively in that relationship with God this is the presence and they'll live in view of the world and they'll also be on mission to the world to bless the world um now, while we have a little bit of time, I'm going to spend the rest of our time just talking about those three things because they, you just can't get any more important. And the first one we'll talk about is just Torah, uh, what it is and what it's there for. Um, and it is the way, if we want to think about it really simply, Torah is the way of being God's people. It's the teachings of God to his people that will lead them into a life of distinctiveness like if they live this out if they do these things it will be a blessing to the nations and the nations will know who they are and it will be radically different lifestyles than the people of the world um and which is helpful to understand too because like a lot of the scripture that we've read torah one of the things that confuses us so much about it is we want to try to understand um we try to take it and like make it fit our time which is very confusing and i'm not saying there's not a point to that and there's not a place for that because it is god's law but it is also helpful to understand that Torah is a specific teaching to a specific people in a specific time in a specific culture. And so like understanding Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we have to understand Torah through those lenses that it is contextual and it speaks to a specific group of people um, in a specific place and time. And it communicates some very interesting things. And so part of like Torah is all about just leading them into distinctiveness. And so you'll have things like um, Israel is not allowed to have a standing army. Instead, they are supposed to trust that Yahweh, the God that they're in unique relationship with, will be their defender. Well, that's crazy unique because the people of Cana and the people of the Promised Land that they're going to go and have um, a wrestling match with um, have really sophisticated military technologies. As we read their story, they have chariots, which are like the ancient tanks, and God forbids Israel from doing anything like that. 
Like you basically run in the battle with like a guarding tools, and God's like, yeah, I'll be there. Um, which is a weird way to live. It'd be like America today, wielding swords as opposed to drones. Um, maybe not. Maybe like black powder or like rifles, like rifles from the Revolutionary War versus drones. Like it's, but, the, but the combat would be so different, and that stands out. Um, Israel isn't allowed to extract interest on loans. Um, they have debt forgiveness programs. In fact, in Israel, you don't really own land. All land belongs to God, and then it is partitioned out to clans and families. And so, um, like in a year of Jubilee, every 50 years, all land that had somehow changed hands would go back to the original clans. And the idea is being that there is no generational poverty in Israel. You cannot lose your inheritance. You cannot lose your land. You cannot lose your sustenance in the world. Um, there's things like Sabbath years where the land is allowed to rest because we've seen that they're suffering for the land. So the land is allowed to rest. Um, even weird laws about not wearing more than one fabric clothing or uh, not planting more than one type of vegetation in your field. These are symbols to the rest of the world that Israel is distinct, that they're unique, that they live distinctively and uniquely. They don't mix things, that they're, they're not going to be uh, mixing the paganism in the world around them with the worship of Yahweh. They're going to be unique. Um, now, all of that's really cool, except that there is a few moments in Torah that feel really unnerving. Uh, and I think there's two kind of like large moments that have to be wrestled through if we can trust that what God is giving his people are good. And, and, and the two areas are this. Um, one is slavery, and the other one is the treatment of women. And I think if we, especially because we've talked so much about what God says about the treatment of women that all, like, said God really cares. So if Torah says something different, it feels really contradictory. Um, if you want, again, this is where this book uh, by Paul Copan would be help, so helpful. Um, God is got a moral monster because he just go into more depth. But we'll just look at it really quickly. Um, and first, I just want to look at slavery. Is What does Torah actually say about slavery? Because if it is anything like ours, then it's not good and we have to struggle with it. Uh, so to understand slavery, we have to understand first and foremost that Torah is built so that there is not supposed to be poverty in Israel. So we just talked about, like, they don't own land. There's debt forgiveness programs. There's taxes so that the poor have something. There's a, there's a policy called the gleaning of the fields so that even if you lost everything, you could go glean in someone else's fields all the things that had fallen on the ground to provide for yourself. Every seventh year, there's an entire debt forgiveness program. Every 50 years, all property is returned because um, you don't own things in Israel. God owns it chiefly, um, again, for their distinctiveness. However, um, people and things don't always work that way. And God is not naive, and he understands that people are um, shits. Um, <laughs> like, really work to find another word. I was like, I don't have anything. Um, oh, sinners. That would have been a good word. Um, I had it written down. Um, and as you read the story of Israel, they never do the year of Jubilee. So they never um, forgive. They never give back property. They never let the, the land rest, um, which is actually part of the reason that they'll suffer exile later in the story. Um, but Torah makes, which is super fascinating, Torah makes accommodations for the sinfulness of Israel. So, like, Jesus will deal with this later, but he'll say, like, um, Moses included laws about divorce because you guys are idiots. And so he's, the idea is being, like, his Torah, Torah understood that people were sinners, and so it made accommodations for them. And so Torah also makes accommodation for sinners when it comes to poverty and greed. And one of those accommodations is slavery. But, trust me, and we'll look at this, it is a system of slavery intended to end debt. Um, 
And this is how you know that. The Bible gives us like some really important rules about slavery. The only... My mom just texted me. Um, <laughs> the only way to become a slave in Israel was to sell yourself to a debtor. You could not be kidnapped. If you were kidnapped, the person who kidnapped you was murdered. They were, they were I shouldn't say they were murdered. They were tried and executed. Um, <laughs> this justice system. They were right down the <laughs> They were rightfully electrocuted. So is slavery really the right word? Because if you're selling yourself into servitude, it's not really slavery. Um, I think you're right. I think that... Um, like um, indentured, indentured servanthood would be a better term. Bond servant would be a good word. The only reason I use slavery is because um, when people have issues with this part of the teaching of Scripture, they're going to call it slavery. Um, and so that's why I use it that, as that term. Uh, but I think you're right. And bond servant, indentured servanthood. Those would be, I do think those are better terms. Um, Butler. <laughs> Butler, yeah. Um, all slaves... This is the other rule. We're to be treated as equal members of society. So you could not split up families. Like, you got to stay married. You got to go be with your wife. Like, you couldn't ruin families like in America. Um, they got to Sabbath. All indigenous servants or slaves got to rest. Um, they got to go to the temple and worship. They were not treated like cattle. You couldn't just make them do whatever you wanted to. Um, three, the life of the indigenous servant or slave was protected. If you were injured by a debtor, you were immediately freed. Um, so you couldn't beat slaves. You couldn't. Uh, you couldn't torture them. You couldn't. Uh, any of the any of the awful things that we think about from um, the antebellum era of American slavery, you could not do because um, you would be freed. And if you were beaten in a way that made it so you could not work, not only were you freed, but you were compensated by the debtor. So it's like um, workers' comp. You were given workers' comp and freed. Um, if a debtor murdered a slave, the debtor was treated as a murderer and executed, um, which proves that they had equal right for life. You could only be a slave for a maximum of seven years. And after your seven years, even if your debt was not done, it was forgiven and you were freed. And not only were you released, the forgiven, not only were you released and forgiven, the debtor was required to give you resources to re-jumpstart your life from his own property and share, which is Deuteronomy 13. Um, So, in a sense, we can say that slavery or indentured servanthood does exist in Israel. Um, but it is so vastly different than the way that we imagine slavery today because of the way I think primarily Americans did slavery. This system is intended to be the last line of defense for someone who is suffering with poverty. Um, who has like nowhere else to go. They can do this to find forgiveness. Um, so that's the teaching on slavery in scripture. Uh, the other thing I wanted to hit really fast is um, just a few moments of weird teachings about women in Torah um, that I think are super helpful to understand. Um, in Numbers 5, we get this really unique thing that people have often referred to as the trial of jealousy. Um, and and, he, and the, the context is, if a man suspected his wife of adultery, but there was no witnesses to be a part of the trial, which was normally required, then the husband would take the wife to the tabernacle or the temple, depending on what era this is. The priest would whip up this weird drink that was like a mix of like sawdust, wine, and prayer. Um, <laughs> and then he would give it to her, and she would drink it. And here's what it says. If she was guilty, her stomach would swell, and her thigh would shrivel. If she was innocent, she'd be fine. Nothing would happen at all. Um, now, people hate this. Because it is not scientific. 
Um, because if you, Salem witch trials and weird stuff like that. Yeah, and yeah, so you, we take all of those moments and we're like applying it to this. Um, here's what I would suggest um, is happening. It is not intended to be scientific. It's intended to be miraculous. Um, that God is setting up a system where he would intervene in the trial. Um, this is the temple. This is the place where his presence dwells. This is not the only moment in Israel's history where God is supposed to intervene in helping decide things or lead people. The priests have uh, utensils and things that are, help, that are meant to help them to make decisions all the time. And I think that this is one of those things where uh, God is intended to intervene in the trial and prove the innocence of someone. Um, and then in that, it is meant to be a protection for the accused. Because again, if we read this narrative in context to the cultures and laws, we just think the law of Hammurabi, which is um, Babylonian law, if you found your, if you believed your wife to be cheating on you, you could just murder her in the house. Israel says, no, no, no. You cannot murder people without a trial or without witnesses. And if there is no witnesses and you have this gut feeling, bring that person to the temple and God will decide. And so it's a protection. Second, one of the other reasons people hate this is that um, the law only includes it happening to women. However, most of Torah, and this is helpful to understand, is case law. So like today, if you were to be a lawyer, you would study lots and lots of case laws that are meant to help judges make decisions in their own case. And a lot of Torah is exactly the same way. There's nothing to suggest in Numbers 5 when you read this that if a woman had a gut feeling about a man cheating, she couldn't do this as well. Uh, because men suffered the exact same penalty in um, ancient Israel for adultery and cheating. Is the penalty still murder? The penalty is death, yeah, for um, affairs. Unless the person you, unless your spouse doesn't want it, um, the spouse gets to control that. So there's lots of moments where people are um, not put to death for that. Like Hosea, the whole prophet, is an example of his wife cheats on him multiple times and he chooses to forgive her instead. Um, so the decision is up to the, the individual family. So the question is, if it was moral, then what makes it immoral today? To like murdering your spouse for cheating on you. Great. I so, I think um, this goes back to Torah makes accommodations for um, broken and sinful people. So in Torah, as you read it, if someone cheats on you, the first normal policy of action is just divorce, um, which is actually like a thing there. So Jesus talks about that in the New Testament is like. When is it right to divorce somebody? Oh, when they've cheated on you. So that's like the normal principle for um, this policy. But all of these things are accommodations for a very specific time and a very specific culture and a very specific people that I think as we're looking at is we're saying like, these people have lived in Egypt, Babylon, and the cultures around them. Their way they think about the world around them is that way. And God is trying to... Um, uh, progress them, in a sense. So they are, like, I don't, I'm not. No, I'm trying to draw something. I don't think it's going to help. Um, <laughs> I was trying to think of like what would be a helpful drawing, and I was like, I got nothing. Um, actually, maybe this would be helpful. Um, like th- they just start really primitive, um, and God is moving them forward. Yeah, what's that, man? Um, so it's also a way of keeping it from happening too. For sure. Die for, it. for sure, you're way less likely. To uh, if you know that in certain circumstances, in certain situations, you can be put to death for adultery, if not just divorce, um, is for sure a preventative mechanism. But yeah, I also think that they're just people are progressing forward um, in their understanding of things and the way that the world works, and so God is trying to move them forward. Um, 
I don't think Torah is actually meant to be perfect. I think it's meant to be accommodations for sinful people in sinful places. That meant to move them forward. Because when you get to Jesus, his teachings on this um, make Torah look really nice. Because he's like, you you believed you could divorce people, but he's like he's like that's the only reason you can divorce people is because you're sinners. Like I say, we go back to Genesis one. And this is what we're striving for, is these like harmonious relationships that we don't have divide in. So it's, it's like Torah is helping us get back to here with a recognition that we're nowhere near here. That we're here. Does that make sense? Well, it makes more sense with, like you were saying, with Jesus' teachings, that like Jesus came to get us back to that. Mm-hmm. Like there's so much more. Yeah. And if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus kind of actually, Jesus walks through the Ten Commandments on the Sermon on the Mount, and he intensifies all of them. Um, so, it's an interesting moment. Um, let's see if I can hit it. Okay, so there's, there's, there's a few of the seconds that I want to look at when it comes to this. Um, the, the, number, the second case study that I wanted to look at is in Exodus 22, verse 16. And it says this, If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give her the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give him to her, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Um, now, the, 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 the criticism that happens in this text right here is that um, a woman is being forced to marry her rapist. And if that was the truth, this would be an awful text. Um, however, there is a difference in Scripture between seducer and rapist. Um, a very big difference between the two. And we'll look at that in just a second. Um, the guy in this example is not a rapist. And I think he is better seen um, as the college guy who is dating a high schooler and he gets her pregnant. <laughs> and this law requires that he takes responsibility for his actions. He's a sweet talker. He's a sweet talker. Um, she is a young, she's a young girl. He's an older man. Um, he sweet talks himself in there. And then he tries not to take responsibility for those actions. And the law says you are required to take responsibility for those actions. Either you are required to marry her or you are required to pay for the raising of the child. Um, this is actually not much different than the laws we have today, except it's more protective of the uh, person who's bearing the child. Um, and then who gets to decide if the person marries that person? Oh, it's the family. So the woman is protected if that guy is actually no good. Um, this one is a little bit harder. Um, it comes in Deuteronomy 22, and it says this. If there is a betrothed virgin, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out for help, though she was in the city. And the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. Now, this seems really troubling. Uh, like, kind of like that sick feeling troubling. Because it looks like the victim of a rape is actually being made the guilty party. It like takes the American rape culture and just like exemplifies it even further. But again, I would suggest that this moment is not about rape. Uh, because when the Bible talks about rape, it uses forceful language. So for example, if we just read on to the next case law in Deuteronomy. It says this, If in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman because she has committed no offense. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country and though the betrothed woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. So in passage one, they meet, which is a major distinction. In passage two, she is seized. I would suggest, uh, and so did many scholars, that passage one is about an affair. Um, 
that a woman is not judged for being unable to fight or unable to cry out, um, but that what's being described is an affair. And it's important to understand, too, that, like, we're using story language to describe circumstances and situations. Like, they don't have the legal terminology of the United States. They don't have, like, types of rape. They don't have types of murder. They don't have types of offenses. So they're just trying to describe things so the judge can read this and be like, oh, okay, I understand what's going on. She, this is an affair situation. Here she's raped, and he gets to die for that. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a, there's a difference. So there's no confusing the victim with the guilty. Uh, does that make sense in that situation? The, the two that are being set up differently there? Uh, I think if we just read it in context. And so I just give you those examples because I think as you read Torah, you can get moments that feel really nerve-wracking. Um, one, because it's hard to place them in context. Or two, because you'll just hear people in culture kind of like levying accusations against Torah, saying that it's unjust, that it's evil, um, that, it, that it advocates things that seem so barbaric. Um, and I do think that Torah makes accommodations for sinful people. I do think that it's progressing us towards somewhere better. But at the same time, I don't think that you need to get freaked out um, at most of the accusations, because I think they're rooted in um, something much better, like protections for women in this situation, protection for the poor in this situation. Um, and there's so many more. There's so many more that we could look at. Um, so if you have questions, you can just feel free to ask, but I don't have time to hit all of them, because um, we're already at 10. Um, before we go, though, the thing that we didn't talk about is this, so the tabernacle. So God, so he gives them Torah, which is how they're going to live distinctively, and then God gives them this fancy tent. And that's actually what most of Exodus, the end of it after chapter 19, is focused on. It's like the construction of a very fancy tent. And what is the purpose of this fancy tent? Well, God tells them that his presence will dwell in it uniquely. So how is God going to restore his presence to Israel, give them a unique place with him? Oh, he's going to dwell in this unique place which will act like, um, how do you draw a tent? That's a great question. Uh, there's a courtyard around it. That's the tent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, an igloo. Yeah, yeah, it's basically the same thing. It's basically the same thing. So um, God is going to dwell here. This is God's presence. Um, he's going to dwell here. And the people of Israel, this will be right in the middle of the people of Israel. So the tribes will be all around it, and they'll live here. And in this space, we'll act like, no, that's not what I wanted. Too big of a circle. This place will look like, uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, it's going to work out. It is, we've said that the two spaces, heaven and earth, are divided. At the tabernacle, we see a uniting of those two spaces. Because what made the space unique, what made Genesis 1 a, a, a good space, it was that God's presence dwelt there. So God's presence will dwell in this place in a unique way, and it'll be like an overlap of heaven and earth in this one place. And then we get the temple later, that'll be the same. And then when we look at Jesus in John 1, John will say that Jesus tabernacled amongst us because everywhere he goes, he creates little pockets of heaven, all rooted originally in this same symbol and image of the tabernacle, the tent, the mobile presence of God that dwells, and everywhere it goes, it creates a little space um, of heaven, wherever it is. Um, and then how do people, the people of Israel get in there? Well, that's Leviticus 1-7, through 7, which is the sacrificial system, which makes clean spaces. It absorbs what is impure, makes the people pure, so they can worship God in that space, and then mediate that out to the rest of the world. Um, everything goes really well for the Israelites until Exodus 32. Um, so not very long at all. And then they choose to reject God. Um, we have their own little downward spiral here. 
Um, they worship a false calf, or the, the golden idol. Um, they reject God. And this is crazy because it's like they're on the honeymoon still. God has rescued them. He's just spoken them. Like the marriage vows have happened. And then like just a few chapters later, they're still in Cancun. He walks into the room and she's with a busboy. Um, <laughs> just, you know, as an example. Um, and despite that, so this covenant that God has with Israel is unilateral. They have stipulations that they're supposed to keep. And yet, in this moment, God chooses to be faithful to his covenant. He chooses to stay with Israel. Um, but throughout the rest of the story, as we continue to read on, this is going to be a tension. Is that God has every legal right to leave. He has every legal right to divorce his people and to just be God. And what will he do? Will he have patience? Will he be faithful? Will he judge? Because he has, again, every single legal right. And as you read the prophets, and we'll try to do this later, um, They'll come into Israel's life, and they'll do it like lawyers. And they'll look at Torah, and they'll be like, hey, like, here's where we failed the stipulations of God's law. Here's what is going to be the consequences of those laws. And they try to like uh, interact with Israel like they're in some kind of courtroom, um, telling them about all of these things. And the tragic part is that Israel will never really live into their role of blessing. And as we come to Deuteronomy, which is the last book of Torah, God actually tells Moses... Um, they're going to fail. That he knows the people of Israel are going to fail. And he says they're going to fail until this. Deuteronomy ten sixteen. Um, he said they're going to fail, so they need to circumcise, therefore, the foreskins of their heart and be no longer stubborn. And that's an interesting statement because the people of Israel are like, oh, so we need to, for- we need to circumcise our hearts and then we'll be all right. But how do we do that? And that becomes, um, well, a really big question for a lot of this story, that when the prophets start opening up, they start to address it. You think about the new covenant in Ezekiel, or the new covenant in Jeremiah. They'll talk about the way the heart will be changed, and all of those things, again, point us towards Jesus. So, cool. That's, uh, that's the end of today.